Let's we'll jump right in. Why don't I give you an introduction and you can tell me if I miss anything. Amber Lee Frost is the author of Dirtbag, out now from Macmillan Press. Her writing can be found in Jacobin Magazine, Catalyst, Damage Magazine, Current Affairs, The Baffler, The New Republic, American Affairs, and many others. You can basically find it everywhere except for social media. Right, you're now right. free. You're now free. You cast off the shackles of social media. And yeah. how is your life uh, off the feed? You know, it's really interesting because it, it immediately affected my attention span. After a week, I could read through the whole paper. After uh, a month, I was back to reading novels. And after like three months, I went, I went through Moby Dick. It was like, oh, this is literally, <laughs> there's a reason why the tech people like don't let their children, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Greatest novels it's I've a, written, yeah. There's a reason why like tech people don't let their children see screens until yeah. until they're older. It's it's going to, when those studies get leaked, I know there have been some on Instagram, it's going to be exactly like uh, Philip Morris and all those executives who were doing their independent studies and saying privately like, I would never let my child smoke. Yeah, I mean, it's something like our generation's big tobacco, I think. I think it's comparable. I think it's just as cancerous. Yeah, I'm maybe, maybe. I am reading about 5G. This is a very unrelated topic, but I am getting increasingly pilled on this. I, yeah, I meant metaphorically, but, you know, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I had read in advance of you publishing this book that one of the reasons that you got into political organizing, among many reasons, was that you saw the unnecessary economic hardship that your creative peers had to endure. And this is a podcast for downwardly mobile creatives. So we are directly yeah, yeah. in the crosshairs of that idea. Yeah. And I was wondering if maybe we could take this opportunity to talk a bit about your background in creative life and your background in music. Because uh, sure. I haven't heard you talk so much about that before, but I always felt a cultural affinity with you because I knew of the galleries and the institutions that you would talk at. And I thought like, oh, Amber's experience is somewhat comparable to mine. Art and music are very different, but I, I had a sense that you were involved in a similar kind of precarious creative pursuit. Definitely. So, I mean, I, some of it is creative, but I, I, you know, I also meant like more broadly, like people weren't able to have kids as early as they wanted to. Like people, you know, people with email jobs suddenly didn't have any job security and their jobs were more grueling. It sabotaged everything. I mean, for me personally, I had read about how people could you know, work, work a job and play on the weekends and, and pay their, pay their rent. And I mean, New York has always been expensive, really was right, but like it has not kept up with the, the wages. The inflation has not kept up with the wages. The rent is too damn high. And yeah, I mean, it, it sabotaged all kinds of things, but I was very frustrated because I was a musician and frankly, a very mediocre punk band. But, you know, I, I always had interest in, I was always making something. And I think most people make something. It's just not really recognized. They have like projects and things like that. And the people who don't, I think a lot of the time just don't have projects because they don't have the time. But, you know, precarity more broadly, like it killed uh, the pleasures of life because you were so focused on survival. Thriving was absolutely out of the question, you know, leisure and, and <laughs> romantic love and a family. It's just like, I got, I got a, that no fucking way. But yeah, I mean, I, I ended up in these galleries too, which is very interesting because I, people would like email me out of the blue and they'd be like, would you like a speaking fee to talk about your article? And I'm like, sure. 
<laughs> I'll do, I'll absolutely do that. Especially like when I first moved to New York, I was, you know, I was on like food stamps. And then I sort of got lumped into this world of like one foot in, one foot out kind of thing. I didn't exactly know what was going on with that. Uh, I had friends that were much more, that were much more involved in it, like Anakachian Anna and stuff. Um, but yeah, just vaguely creative circles. I, I like people who make things and it's very frustrating because it's very difficult to make things right now. It's extremely difficult to make things. And that has been the story of this project <laughs> for the last few years. One of the things I always think about is that there's an artist who's, um, maybe I won't mention her name because it's not especially uh, especially relevant, but the economic circumstances that she moved into in New York in the 1970s are very relevant, where she describes in advance of a major museum retrospective, this is something that you would do at the height of your career. You know, you get one of these in your life, mm -hmm. grand survey of all of your work of decades and decades. And she describes moving to New York working three days a week as a waitress, I know. paying for both an apartment and paying for a separate studio, two pieces of real estate, and making largely unsellable experimental video work. So imagining the cost of rent and the wage floor to sustain that type of life is, is I mean, it's preposterous. Everyone I know works like at least six days a week and they can't yeah. pay rent in one place. They have like yeah. four different roommates. And yeah, it's just, it's amazing how much like, the space in which you could have that creative pursuit has just disappeared from people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I really strategized to get stuff done. And I, it was, you know, I'm a sneaky little hustler. So, you know, moved to New York, got a job that I didn't intend to keep, figured I would go back to waitressing or bartending because you could actually make money doing that. But had a gig sort of um, blogging for an arts and culture blog. And eventually did well enough that I could, um, you know, I could, I could just, I could do that in a combination of another job, which was waitressing and then, and then teaching enough people liked my writing to, you know, it, a woman named Elaine Tobin, who's absolutely wonderful. And I, I owe so much to was like, Hey, you want to teach at NYU? And I'm like, I kind of went to community college. I don't have an advanced degree. And she's like, no, no, no. It's, kind of a real estate venture with the university attached but huh yeah <laughs> like, okay it's like you know it's it's a property hustle like they own nyu owns so much shit and she's like one of the things that they can still do because it's such a lucrative we'll say university and scare quotes is uh they still hire people who don't have advanced degrees because they they uh sell it to you know the global one percent and all those poor middle class kids that are suckered into believing they're gonna pay it off that mm, hey mm -hmm. you need to learn from real new york writers real new york artists and uh yeah i put together a, a syllabus of my favorite kind of writing and taught freshman first and second semester writing and i did that and i got health insurance and then i you know, got off Medicaid or whatever, which was horrible. I hated a health insurance. I was like, <laughs> I want to go back on the one system that works. Um, and I was writing and then, and then writing kind of got semi lucrative. Um, I got a really good editor, Chris Lehman, who really liked my work and really improved it. You know, I just kind of dropped off of music because I'm like, I'm not that great at this anyway, which I think a lot of people go through. They like sort of like, uh, zoom through different, uh, types of art until they find something that that they really uh, can enrich. And, and, you know, I lived in a legal 
three person sublet with Felix Biederman and, and Nick Mullen for years. And, uh, we were able to just pay just shit, you know, lo- very low rent to live in a, a black mold, you know, infested oh, Jesus. apartment. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't really, the first time I like moved out, got an apartment of my own. I texted Nick and I'm like, I'm sick, but I realized this is the first time, like, I've noticed being sick. And he's like, Oh yeah, we live in an apartment full of black mold. And I'm like, Oh, you just, you, you never realize how slowly <laughs> and gradually you, uh, yeah, yeah. like lower your expectations for habitation in New York. And you don't realize you're like, Ooh, the caulk has been done recently. You know, things are <laughs> healing out of your bathtub. And, uh, yeah, the Felix and, and friends started a, um, podcast in our, so, so did Nick in our apartment and, you know, some of it's right place, right time. If if we thought it was actually going to be successful, it, Will says this. He said, if I thought it was actually going to be successful, I would have named it something less stupid. Um, but <laughs> it did really well, shockingly well. And I'm like, well, I guess I get to do this and right now. And uh, yeah, yeah, blessings upon me. Um, but most of that was just kind of luck. Uh, which is a very strange thing to have to deal with is to be like, uh, like, oh, I did all this hustling to get here and here and here. And then the thing that actually paid off was just a, you know, a completely random happenstance thing. You know, the, the hustling just kept me afloat. The yeah, actual yeah. success and creative things just, you know, fell on my head. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the number of extraordinarily talented people I know who are working in New York, barely making ends meet trying to find some way to survive. Uh, And then the housing stories that they bring back, Brad was telling me this story. This is back in like, I mean, it had to have been like 2010 or 11, but he, I don't know if I can tell this without his permission, but (laughs) I'll I'll say it anyway, whatever. Then I'll I'll ask him if I can say it. Um, (laughs) He went to see an apartment. He was doing the apartment hunt and he went to see this place in the McKibben lofts Mm -hmm. and the apartment had a dirt floor. (laughs) <laughs> the apartment was an unfinished section of the building that these guys, like their apartment was adjacent to it. And they thought that they could rent out that like unfinished basement area to somebody oh as like their fourth roommate or something. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I've heard it from a few friends that like America is uh, both a first and a third world country that uh, both yeah. of these things exist in different areas. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I joke about, you know, Michael Harrington, one of the, you know, kind of Trotskyite critics of Stalin, which well, I won't get into that, but one of the founders of uh, Democratic Socialists of America, uh, his big book was called The Other America. And it was about, you know, during the post-war affluence, there were still people like my mamma and papa who uh, grew up without indoor plumbing or electricity. And we think of that as being a very rural, you know, a very rural thing. But I mean, when you look at the way we live in cities right now, again, New York has always been a little gross, but it's absolutely absurd the things that people are willing to put up with to be proximal to, I mean, that they have to put up with to be proximal yeah, to yeah. anything mm-hmm. they might have a, a chance at, uh, you know, at a career. Yeah. And the thing that is so um, baffling to me now is that a lot of the people who are tolerating those conditions do not even believe in the legitimacy of the institutions they're trying to enter. So it's a yeah, very absolutely. strange, it's a very strange period. Yeah, they just want to get by. 
on your earlier point of uh, decreasing American attention spans, we watched the 1967 debate between Michael Harrington and William F. Buckley. Uh, that was oh, yeah. a, a publicly broadcast debate for like an hour and a half on television, you know, uh, decades and decades ago. And the idea that you could have a sustained debate that the public would be invested in, care about, that their I minds know. could be persuaded by two public intellectuals. Now we have like 15 second clips of Ben Shapiro yeah. on a podcast or yeah, maybe well, social I, media, I, we should just nuke the entire thing is what I, <laughs> I mean, I, outcome. I, I, again, the internet being a public utility is that does light up my, I don't know what the externalities or costs of that would be, but it does light up my maybe part of my brain. But I, I've, I've said, you know what, we should turn it off at nights and weekends. If there's yes. a way to just flip the yes. switch and just and turn holidays. it off at night and weekends. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There yeah. should be bank <laughs> holidays or whatever, just so we're not constantly connected. That to me would be a good, that would be a good start. But to your point about like people sort of paying attention, I mean, it was good to have, I don't want to say a monoculture, but like a curated culture. Like mm -hmm. the fact that we don't have DJs anymore. We, you know, have algorithms that sort of pick out things for you. You don't have like the cool guy at the record store who says, Hey, if you like this, you might like this or just play is a different album like on the on the speakers so when you walk in to browse you're getting you're getting samples i i don't know as much about the art world but the curation also seems very um crowdsourced which is very very chaotic i i, I like the idea of people who are professionally in charge of a culture i mean People yes, would say yeah, like there's yeah. there's not enough democracy in the economy. There's too much democracy in the culture. <laughs> well, that's the yeah, that's kind of the great um the great irony of all of these things is that our cultural institutions are necessarily structured as dictatorships, which is that you have one curator who doesn't deliberate the decisions, and that yeah. is what produces good culture. Um yeah. and so I've I've tried to make the argument over the past few years that I am a cultural elitist and an economic populist, and I don't find Absolutely. those things to be incongruent with each other. Same. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask, though, some of the costs that uh, your creative peers went through. I think one of the things that led me to the political solution for creative life, let's say, for example, people are pursuing how to fit their work into the market better, mm -hmm. how to get institutional grants so that they can have creative right. freedom. Uh, right. Each of those things, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. The kind of less considered, but I think preferable solution is that you can exist in a society of perhaps, God forbid, social democracy, wherein mm -hmm. the wage floor is significantly higher, the rent is lower, and you have more decommodified time to pursue whatever your creative passion, your hobby happens to, to be. The thing that you mentioned before about curation, these are kind of folded together, is that as that space has disappeared from American life, our cultural institutions have also been subject to an elite capture where now you have these creative dictatorships in institutions, but they're entirely filled by kids who grew up with trust funds because the institutions pay such low rates. They pay you like $35,000 a year. And then right. no one no one else can afford to do that work unless it's subsidized by intergenerational wealth. So right. um, yeah, we kind of end up in the worst of all scenarios where we do have these you know, spaces that could be curated, but they are filled with the tastes of people who are totally out of touch of the mainstream of American life. Yeah, 100%. And the only um, like comparable thing in terms of, and their investments, art is an investment, you know, I've written about yeah, this. Yeah. But it's the, the only other people that gets to decide the value of their own acquisitions is like the tech industry. 
I mean, like, like elites get to say we're worth this much and we work got to say we're worth this much. And it's like that no one else is allowed to do that. That's deranged. And the only like balance you sort of have to that is kind of a, in the arts is kind of a PMC crowdsource thing where it's like, well, we want more, you know, disabled women of color or we want more this. And it's not the same thing as curation. It's sort of window dressing. And it is, it, it's a, it's a crowdsource that it's, it's still an elite crowdsource if you want to put it that way. But that butting up against, say, like a Dawkins Joanu or whatever, you know, who had Jeff Koontz design his mega yacht. It's like those are the two, <laughs> those are the two ways that like art is, you know, valued <laughs> right now. And they're both pretty debased and, and tragic. Speaking of uh, Dawkins, friend of the stream, you wrote this <laughs> incredible article in, I believe it was 2016 for Current Affairs. Mm -hmm. And this piece this was on my syllabus when I taught at the School of Visual Arts. It was on my syllabus when I taught at RISD. Ooh. The Declining Taste of the Global Super Rich. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's a very interesting piece. It's uh, You have to kind of step outside of your own assumptions. I find this is very productive for people who are on the left, and especially people who are educated in elite institutions, who have to do a bit of deprogramming after graduating. Yeah. But maybe uh, for people who have not yet read that piece, would you maybe give us a brief summary of the things that you were thinking about while you were writing that article? Sure. Um, I think the thing is, is that I, I always enjoyed, I mean, I was very punk or whatever, and I liked the idea of, you know, being able to make things on my own. The way that sort of shifted is obviously that, you know, in you know the 1950s, if you wanted to buy a guitar and an amp, you could afford it. So that's why it got big the same way, the same way podcasting got big. It's like low overhead. But I also always appreciated high culture. I sang opera in college. I, I love the symphony. I love the ballet. Um, and I never thought of those things as sort of mutually exclusive. You know, I, I, whatever. I am, I am a cultural elitist as, as well as appreciating the, you know, DIY punk stuff as well. But that stuff is in decline. For a number of reasons. One, I don't, I, I don't want to blame modern art or anything like that, but a modern art has become essentially like a commodity that's being collected by the global rich and they have bad fucking taste. And, and, and also like they've sort of been infected by postmodernism where they, that's a, that's a different thing. But there's other things like say, uh, the EU, the EU has said, if we, if we lend you money, uh, you know, whatever Portugal, you have to use it for certain things. You know, right. it's it's like a softer version of the Soros program. Um, and you can't use it on restoring one of the most beautiful opera houses in Europe. I think to some degree, it's related to the fact that the elites at one point were sort of scared of, of, of Vox Populi or whatever. And they had to sort of concede certain things. They had to create publics or at the very least, you know, they had to institutionalize uh, what I call the the, the PBS brain, um, which is the only reason I liked Tired is that I had a mom that you know had was like, you're gonna you're gonna watch this 1970s you know performance of Shakespeare by some weird British people on you know on PBS, which is where I absolutely got that appreciation. I wouldn't have had exposure to it otherwise. But the idea of of, of passing that over of passing that responsibility over to the whims of the wealthy doesn't just mean, oh, it's stupid because they have 
bad taste or because they're commodifying it for collection, it's an investment to them. It's also, they, they have whims. Um, there was a really, really dynamic contemporary ballet studio uh, that was funded by one of the Waltons. And it, it was hell. It was sort of like, it was kind of a, uh, like a stripper setup where you don't really have a job. You sort of check in, you get fined for having a messy station. A traditional s- strip club is like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's like freelancing on crack. Yeah. Um, the fact that they can fine you for like leaving out your hairspray and that happens a lot is really funny. And they would do the same thing to these, to these ballerinas and ballerinos. She decided she was bored of it and she just shut it down. The wealthy are mercurial because they can be. So there's obviously like a lot of things wrong with it, but I do think it relates primarily back to the fact that we've reduced publics, public investment in the arts and the fact that the elites are no longer scared of you know the sort of like popular unrest so they're like i'm gonna do i don't have to build a fucking beautiful library i don't have to you know have uh you know free concerts in uh in in the park or whatever that i that i i i remember going to a free concert at lincoln center and i'm like this is a really good idea because it was in the in the just horrible heat of summer and i'm like this is what they do to prevent a do the right thing style riot uh and that's yeah. that is a movie fundamentally about weather <laughs> like, like you have to give people something and they're, they're you know they're giving us less and less but we're so focused on survival that we can't even we can't even do anything about it well they're giving us instagram is uh i think the yeah. way that they see it it's like well we build the platform yeah. for you to upload your own work and now everybody's yeah. a liberated artist the opiate of the masses and then the opiate of the masses is also just opium like it's, it's just yeah, it's your it's just your chance of being a content creator or sedating yourself chemically <laughs> it's very sad but true the thing that i really appreciate about the piece is that noblesse oblige is a incredibly conservative argument yeah what what you go through in the piece is actually that even i have to assume that this is meant for an audience of mostly people on the progressive left who would in almost every case prefer generous public funding the you know ministry of culture that portugal decided to disband because uh, of european austerity conditions that's preference number one and then preference number two is that you have this generous private support noblesse oblige and so on um even that is dissipating and so if you can't sustain that it it almost feels like oh talking about increasing public funding for the arts is like you guys are in the wrong chapter you're in the wrong decade like we're actually this far away from the problem now absolutely yeah we have to like base baseline let's focus on just scaring the shit out of them enough to get like you know free days free days at the museum let's start with that and then we'll move on to having a ministry of culture there's um there may be another side of this at work also i spoke i think it was about this time last year in december of last year i was at art basel in miami in December. Mm. And I spoke uh, I spoke on a separate panel about different topics, but I sat also through a day of different lectures about people who generally their job is to do philanthropy and provision arts organizations and so on. And one of the women I happen to know who works in that space was talking about how there's a changeover in the generational hands in which these philanthropic trusts and endowments are managed. And so perhaps the grandparents cared about opera or ballet or theater and so on. But the grandchildren, this newest generation, 
they don't particularly feel a responsibility, I think, as you phrased it in the piece, to be stewards of the sublime, yeah. to give something back to culture. And instead, the topics that they prefer to donate to are, she listed, social justice and climate change. Hmm. And so there's a, a transformation of the value system of our economic elites also that has a kind of generational tether to all of these things. And I started thinking that if a large portion of the ideology of our cultural institutions and our elite publications in the last few years has to do with kind of hating this um, conservative reactionary figure that lives in a state that you've never been to and someone you've never met. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea of creating a culturally enriching experience for that person is kind of counterintuitive. Like, wh why would you give back to enrich a population that you so thoroughly despise? Right. right. No, that's a really good point. It's also just like, why waste opera on the bumpkins? But like, also, I don't even like opera. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the whole, you know, Stewards of the Sublime is a very, is a very dated thing. And I think you're right that part of it is tastes have changed, impulses change. The plausible deniability that they're hoarding wealth and, and that's evil is, is reoriented around things like climate change and, uh, you know, diversity initiatives. But I think some of it is that, frankly, it's just cheaper. Hmm. I, I had someone, an opera singer said like, he's like, okay, well, the thing about the opera. And there used to be like these mini opera things that that were going in Bushwick where a bunch of professional yeah, uh, professional yeah. opera singers you could go see. It was very minimalist. It was like very cool. But and you know, definitely like go see it. It's it's cool. But like there are certain things that aren't supposed to be punk. You know, maybe they could be both, but you want the big, big, big production. And he's like, the thing is everyone gets together. There's a, there's an orchestra, there are all these people, there's costumes, there's lighting, there's all this stuff that goes into it. And then it's done and it goes away and you don't get credit for it after it's done. It's an event. It's creating something very big, you know, sublime. You don't get and, an asset too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah, get something Bolshoi you can liquidate later. Big. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and you don't get something that, you know, essentially you have to keep doing over and over. Or, or maintain like a, a foundation or something. But I don't, I don't even know how grants work anymore. They were like sort of shifting around the time that I wrote that. So maybe that's like a dated, you know, a, a dated observation. You know, the, the, the way, the way the ultra wealthy, uh, funnel and launder money, you know, for, for their own, again, plausible deniability that, that their hoarding wealth is abhorrent, uh, shifts a lot. And over, I think, an increasingly short period of time, I think everything, I guess, happens over an increasingly short. Ev everything happens faster and worse. It's speeding up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's speeding up. I mean, I can, uh, I can't attest to the conditions in opera or ballet, obviously, but, um, within, within the art world, uh, I know my peers in Europe, it's, uh, conditions of austerity for decades where, you know, the millennial artists in the Netherlands, for example, what they can count on is like, a you know, 50%, a fraction of what the generation before them would get. So it's, right. uh, it's closing down kind of, kind of everywhere. Yeah. But let me ask you about the book. The book is written from inside the perspective of the millennial movement for socialism. And you have been right. involved in that for many, many years, uh, over a decade at this point. You were a yeah. extremely early DSA member uh, before you yeah. moved to New York. You've been yeah. writing for 10 plus years, podcasting. And of course, there's the Bernie campaign. 
The book describes the successes and failures of the millennial movement for socialism. And yeah, I, feel I, didn't, like I didn't write any of that copy, by the way. <laughs> I just, you know, sold a sort of a romantic memoir kind of thing. And I'm like, hey, whatever. Yeah, call it that. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, uh, is it a social history of millennial socialism? Man, I don't know what it is. I honestly, like, I had a kind of a crisis uh, when I was writing it. And I'm like, I don't know, what's the fucking point of writing this? Like, everyone kind of knows what happened with Bernie. And I don't want to get into a sort of uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, which it would be more like Tuesday, Thursday at this point. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't want to, you know, go through the sort of granular ways in, in which, like, that campaign was felled and it's like well you know a, there's more sabotage from inside the, the the dnc than anything else and blah blah everyone knows that and then i sort of i was like well i never really went into it like wanted to do like a memoir memoir because that's i waited actually a very long time before writing about myself because during when i was coming up and writing there was kind of a trauma industrial complex i, I wrote something about it for the baffler and uh, a book review that was like there there was like this book of like all of these women talking about their, it was different accounts of their sexual assault. I'm like, this is like oh the worst God. idea. It's just like gathered together in a book. Yeah. Like, like a ugh. compendium of, and it's just like, Oh, awesome. A rape coffee table book. What kind of perverse weirdo is going to read through that? It was disgusting. And I felt it was very exploitative for like a number of reasons. I felt like economically exploitative, but also no shrink would recommend that like if you're still reeling and suffering from something that you go out in like essentially a literary public square and announce what happened to you like no no like uh, you know ethical mental health professional would be like yeah shout it from the rooftops you don't have any interiority you don't have any privacy or intimacy with your loved ones you know everything is public and it fit in with the larger trend of at this time, you know, they're like bustle and, and things like that. Um, I think Jezebel was still kind of fun and slutty at that point. But you'd get like $50 to write about the worst thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, yeah. And not only wow. was that like garbage, but it's like you get one shot at that. And a lot of these women were very like green writers and they weren't emotionally or artistically prepared to write about something with that kind of weight. So it would be a bad essay about the worst thing that ever happened to them that was being aired publicly before they had any sort of like emotional uh, recovery from it that they were paid like 50 bucks for. So I took a very long time and I just wanted to write about political economy. And then I wrote, I wrote an article called Daddy Issues because I saw like this very strange thing where people were like, cause you know, I've always been anti child support. Cause I had a quote unquote deadbeat dad. And I'm like, well, she, she had, my mother had to have another job chasing down a, a bipolar guy, uh, for, for money he sometimes didn't even have. Like that became a second job for her. And I'm like, no, this is the sort of thing like children should be cared for by the welfare state. And I think this it's stuff makes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, families broadly should be, should be cared for by, by the welfare state. And that was the first time I sort of like used my experience to drive it home. And I sort of did this thing where I wove in personal experience after I think I'd gotten a lot more experience just writing. And I, I had, again, 
Chris Lehman was an amazing editor. I was ready to to write about that stuff. Um, and I'm glad I waited. And when I taught when I taught uh NYU, I I wrote all of the I I my syllabus had like, you know, David Rapkoff and Fran Leibowitz and Lucy Sant and all of all of these people that wrote very interesting, particular, sometimes intimate, but never like, you know, devastating things. And then the very last thing on my syllabus that I assigned was um, an Ariel Levy essay that uh, I think is called Thanksgiving in Mongolia. And it's about her having a miscarriage on a, on a trip to Mongolia. And it was like a second, second trimester, um. second trimester miscarriage. So it did, you know, look like a baby. Um, and it was devastating. And I'm like, I, you know, you guys, I, I, I saved this one for last because I didn't want, you know, there's a, there was, say there were 19 people in the class. I'm like, I didn't want to get back 19 dead babies. Uh, I wanted, <laughs> I wanted, I want your, you know, your paper, your response to this to come after you have some, some work in. Um, so this is just a very roundabout way to say that I, I wanted to work in personal experience to, um, you know, essays about political economy and, and political power because I, the one, those are my favorite kind of political memoirs and political writing. And two, I think you kind of do a disservice to writing about a moment when you maintain distance from it completely because you sort of come across as someone that doesn't have a, a life. You come across <laughs> someone who has yes. a political life and doesn't yeah, have a yeah. real life. And I think it is important to, you know, at least for, for my kind of writing, to sort of be honest about the fact that, yeah, this wasn't the only thing going on in my life. Like there is, and even then, there, even in the, the political stuff, there's a lot of personal things that go into that. It's a, it's a very sensitive thing. Even if you, even if you have, I think, a good perspective on it and you don't believe, you know, you're putting the red flag over the Reichstag, like you, you know, it's uh, being serious minded does not exclude being a person. That's kind of what I finally arrived at when I was like, no, 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 I am going to, you know, fuck COVID, fuck my uh, my uh, sort of paralysis and how to write that. And I'm like, you know, write what you saw and what you were doing. And some of what I was doing was, you know, being pissed off and getting drunk and, um, you know, making friends and having little adventures. And I also didn't write the, the copy that ever that, you know, kiss at the train station or something like that. But it's like, well, no, I want to pull people in. But moreover, I, I want people to to read about someone who had a political life and a real life. Well, I think you write in the book that you do have a life and cultural interests and hobbies outside of politics. And uh, yeah. you write that politics shouldn't be your hobby. Yeah, you want socialism to be done so that you can get back to all of the other stuff you enjoy about life. Uh, and Absolutely. to be especially aware of the people who come to the movement and don't have friends or interests outside of it. Uh, these very weirdly underdeveloped people who their entire life is like being a nerd or uh, basically not yeah. even a nerd for the history, like a nerd for the lore. Like they're collecting yes. lore of the 19th century type of shit. That is such a good point. That is such a good way of putting it. That is such, they turn it into the Marvel universe or Yeah, it's whatever. like, that's, that's not canon, actually. That's, and, and they have some, like, <laughs> yeah, elaborate yeah, citation yeah. for it, but it's, it's mostly the same, the same dispute. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And, like, what does contemporary America have to do with what, what Lenin said? I mean, there's, 
there's certainly evaluations you can take from that. And I think, you know, it's, it's fun to read Marx and it's interesting to have sort of a, you know, a, a rooting in, in socialist and communist history, especially because we're sort of living in the crater of it, you know, mm, the, the yeah. end of history, so to speak, maybe slowly climbing out of it. But, but yeah, you're right. It's lore. It might as well be the Marvel universe. And it's like you, yeah, you should be wary of people who come into it without friends, without interests, without uh, a life. Because if you go into politics looking for friends, uh, you know, you're going to come into it with the, with the wrong agenda. You know, just get a personality. <laughs> like, try that. Get a sense of humor. Do that and then go into it because I never wanted it to be cool or a club. I want it to be, I, I always say I wanted socialism to be the, the wallpaper, you know, something you sort of forget about. I wanted it to be, you know, normies and, and, you know, parents and middle American suburbanites. I, I wanted it to be an actual mass movement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I wanted it to be so entrenched in the society that, that people don't question it. And then they get really pissed off when they see any kind of budge towards austerity. Then when they see like, what they're, oh, they're lowering, um, uh, food, food, uh, stamps, I guess. I mean, when I say food stamps, I mean that everyone should have food stamps because there was a, a Swedish, uh, saying that like, uh, b- bad social welfare helps the poor, good social welfare helps everybody. Hmm. Because then when people are like, oh, they're taking away $15 worth of our food stamps, everyone gets pissed off. Right, um, right. You know, it, it's seen as an actual collective good. It's not just to help the destitute or whatever. Because once that happens, you have an extremely marginal group of people who are fighting really hard to survive again. I want, I just, yeah, it's true. I want it to be done. I want it to work. And I want people to have a sense of, you know, pride and um, investment in it and a sense of, um, you know, a, a sense of social responsibility. I want to live in a society, Citarella. That's what I want. <laughs> like, well, I, is I, that too much to ask? I don't want I, social I can only to be agree. cool or fun or a club. I just want it to be boring and done. I I mean, I have always said to, uh, I mean, I call them students, but I guess they're listeners to the podcast because I don't uh, teach anymore. But um, I've always said that I just want the stuff from politics. Like I have, I'm, I'm into art. I'm into all of these other hobbies. Yeah. Like I have my cultural identity, but I need all of those other people to get the stuff. And if I don't have them, yeah. then I'm not going to go to the dentist, which I have not yet gone to yeah. the dentist. So uh, oh, God, <laughs> here I am I'm, with I'm all the cultural identities and uh <laughs> One of the things that seems to be particularly in the way of American socialism is something called the professional managerial class, which we have (laughs) talked about at length on this podcast. I'm not going to define Mm -hmm. it because we have included it in multiple syllabi and different podcasts, uh, and you have written about this extensively. I'm thinking of a piece published in American Affairs in 2019, The Mm -hmm. Characterless Opportunism of the Managerial Class. Right. This has been one of the topics that we've done quite a bit of research into. Friend of the stream, former host of the uh, Jacobin show on YouTube and also the podcast, author of a forthcoming book that I have to check in on. Jen Pan assigned us yeah. the death of a yuppie dream, the rise and fall of the PMC. Yeah, text, 
sex with her every day, so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be biased here. I'm I'm extremely pro Jen Pan, longtime friend. I'm yes, I'm really excited for the book, and we'll have her definitely back on the podcast uh, when the book comes out. That's it's this year or 2024, I should say, but uh, mm-hmm. very very soon. Um, and so I took I took her recommendation very seriously. So we read through the Aaron Reich's piece. This is published in 2013, and it basically the brief summary is that it looks at employment statistics for people post-war 60s, 80s, 2000s, all the way up to roughly the Occupy era, and they describe the rise and fall of the professional managerial class, as the title suggests. And so I then I brought this up to other friend of the stream, Catherine Liu, author of mm-hmm. Virtue Hoarders. Uh, I believe also that's 2021. Uh, yeah. She's excellent. One of my favorite episodes. People. Very interesting that biennial curators listened to that episode with Catherine Liu, and <laughs> <laughs> they fucking loved it. They really went wild. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. There's some kind of unspoken, uneasy alliance in the art world that is uh, uh, rapidly, rapidly disintegrating, especially in the last few weeks. Uh, but the um, the the thing that I'm interested to tease out here is that Catherine's reading of the death of a yuppie dream was that she disagreed with the Aaron Reichs, and her idea was that the professional managerial class did not fall around the Occupy era, but actually it grew in strength. Not mm-hmm. factional infighting or whatever, but just a kind of theoretical thing that I'm interested to solve. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. where do you stand on this uh, analysis? Because uh, for me, like a emboldened, uh, empowered professional managerial class would go a long way to explain some of our cultural landscape. But then I understand there are also employment statistics that uh, in different yeah. places, they tell different stories. So how do you, uh, wh- where do you fall in that dichotomy? So, I mean, I do agree with, with Catherine, I think, I think, you know, I love, I love Barbara for being an empiricist. I think she does have a point. I mean, this, this sounds like I'm fence straddling here, but Catherine is definitely right. She's also an empiricist. Catherine is definitely right that, you know, the, the professional managerial class as a unit has grown in power, but, and that they have a kind of class solidarity, which is strange because they all want to rip each other's throats out. <laughs> I would actually describe them as, uh, I think the best comparison, and I've thought of this before, which I think um, synthesizes the Aaron Reich. I do think Aaron Reich is, she's a little gentle with the PMC. Hmm. But I, I, by the way, I, I love her, God rest her soul. But I would compare them sometimes to the military. Huh. So the American military has grown wildly. I mean, it's a little bit diminishing now because like, you know, kids are like, why would I do that? But it's expanded, it's bloated. But the life of the individual American soldier has gotten shittier and shittier. I know people who have like, you know, gone to bases and like, they just immediately sign you up for food stamps. Wow. I remember learning that like, oh, you get free college. But when I was uh, in school, because it was, you know, basically community college, it was satellite campus, but it served the purpose of community college, that these, they'd have to leave in the middle of class to, because they'd be deployed. And then they wouldn't get credits for that class. So they were always, wow. they didn't really have benefits, uh, the benefits that they say, say they were going to get. But at the same time, military in, in power, they, you know, it doesn't mean we have a lot of wins, pretty bad at stuff. But it's expanding and expanding. It's bloated and swelling and swelling. But if you look at the individual units, the the human beings involved, shittier and shittier lives. So it is. It is. It seems counterintuitive, but obviously there's precedent for it. And I think the the PMC, you know, the the numbers of their they're they're more precarious. They can't keep up with 
you know, inflation like anyone else. They work so much, so much more than, than previous. I mean, like I, I always look at this letter Hunter S. Thompson sent to his editor, the Ed Rolling Stone, and they were only, only offering him get this only offering him a dollar a word and that was like <laughs> 1976 <I've>... dollars <laughs> and i'm just like yeah. oh man oh to be a writer in 1970 only a dollar a word and he was oh, like boy. how dare you insult me with this you know thing so yeah i mean the, the the other thing is they do weirdly have a class solidarity this is the other incongruous you know seemingly irreconcilable thing um, they do have a weird class solidarity when it comes to being represented as professionals and people who should be in charge of managing things mm-hmm. but they are the most ruthless people on earth yes they, they are. are always ripping each other's throats out so even as much as they have um the solidarity of an identity of a professional they hate each other it's this very strange evolving aspect of not just the the labor force but the sort of um the political orientation of the country that seems to disagree with itself all the time Hmm. and i i always wonder how sustainable it's going to be you know i don't i don't think of it like a true workers class consciousness is going to emerge from the pmc i had a friend who god bless his heart he was like, I think I'm gonna, you know, gonna unionize my, my tech floor thing. And I was like, honestly, I died. I have more faith in the unionization of SS prison guards. Like there's no, at least they had a national project that they believe in. Heck guys, they all believe, they all believe that they are rugged individuals. They don't care about each other at all. They all, they, it's, it's built into the culture. And I don't mean that they, it's a bunch of egomaniacs that gravitate towards it. I'm saying you can't work or exist in that world without, without just falling prey, because I do think it's a victimizing thing to that ideology, to that mm-hmm. rugged individualist. And it's like, dude, you're, you're proletarianizing just like everyone else. Well, coding. Yeah. Same thing with grad school they'll be like no no no. i'm gonna be the one who gets a tenured professorship that's another thing that would be yeah, great in 1976 yeah right. yep. it's like no, you're <laughs> fucking not how do you think you're the exception and it's just it's the ideology built into the into the industries well we are we are at some kind of inflection point where certainly pursuing higher education and graduate degrees in the united states many people are never repaying those loans and not everybody yeah. has access to intergenerational wealth where they can just pay for a higher education just for mm-hmm. you know personal enrichment or something like that. Um, so I, I do think that Do Not Research, for example, I know there are people who use this podcast as a supplement for their MFA education where they get more relevant information. We talk about literally the exact same content that was on my syllabus in the universities, and they just get it here for $5 instead of $50,000, which is, uh, you know, I I would encourage those people to increase their monthly contribution on Patreon. But but (laughs) I I, I think that the, the larger issue is that there's a kind of clear economic wedge that's being driven down creative life. And in some cases, it's not worth recouping. 
the professional managerial class, as the Aaron Reichs were writing about it in, I think, what is it, Radical America 1971 or 73, this uh, this initial mm -hmm. definition, uh, you know, they include nurses in that, which today, when I think of the PMC, mm -hmm. I think of blue check journalists on Twitter. And so over time, that yeah. that class or the, the colloquial definition has kind of shifted. So yes, some parts of that class have become incredibly powerful uh, right. and other parts I of it are, are relatively disempowered. Right. And I think it, it makes sense to clarify and draw those distinctions as much as we can, even as being like PMC is kind of nebulous, but like, okay, one, nurses are professionals because they have to pay to play, which hmm. is another reason we're having this insane nursing sh shortage. It's like, it's cost too fucking much to become a nurse. It used to be that the university in general, and at least in the time of like, you know, mass increased matriculation was pay to play it's now you have to pay and it's like they you're not even guaranteed a job but hmm. i think the the idea of nurses is that like okay well you might manage a hospital floor but most nurses are grunts i think the managerial part of it and i think Catherine lou is very good on this where she's like I'm not against professionalization i just don't believe that this class of people are also equipped to manage everything because they have a class they have a class interest in managing in a certain way, let's say. And yeah, nurses don't really make sense to include it unless a little bit you want to put, I don't even know if, if, if managing a hospital floor, I think that might be just like managing, um, you know, a Taco Bell. You're not really a manager. What you make the schedules, uh, you're not, to me, manager, like the, the big difference is do you determine wages? And are you in charge of hiring and firing? And I think those are sort of the hard lines that I've used to actually, you know, go for PMC. Yeah, I think, well, that's a that's a useful that's a useful definition. The last thing I want to ask you here is that there's a few things that we've discussed. I think you mentioned some potentials of this in some of our earlier earlier mm -hmm. conversation. There is uh, some legislation which seems to be relatively unique in the neoliberal period of this economic consensus between both Democrats and Republicans, but really all major parties across the advanced world. Uh, let's say this roughly tracks from the 19, 1980 to 2020. And then there's things that are you know moving now. People have called this in some cases the industrial policy renaissance, things like the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. You could even include the Green Deal in Europe. These things have an increased level of state investment and interventionist hand in the economy. In some cases, they include the reshoring of industry. And I wonder if there's maybe like a, a kind of peak and valley for relatively bad and relatively good periods of capitalism. And would it be conceivable that we are just scraping the bottom of one of those valleys for the next few years, but there is something like uh, like an upswing under which the conditions for you know the possibility of organizing if you do reshore industrial manufacturing like those are jobs you can do old school organizing in but you know the yeah. tech floor you can't really organize your slack channel but you can organize your shop yeah. floor uh so in addition to you know the all the, all the cultural aspects of it just the kind of practicalities of being on the ground and organizing and so on those things do seem to be shaking up. So I guess where where do you uh, fall in this uh, you know threshold for optimism about the larger scale transformation and the uh, potential to exit this neoliberal consensus? 
honestly, I'm loving it. Uh, I don't <laughs> think it's necessary. I mean, like, whatever. I I think it will be, or rather, I suspect it will be essential to invest in infrastructure. Another fascinating thing I found out is that the, there is a labor shortage. We don't have enough hard hats. We don't have enough logistics people because they're told that's shit job. You want to go to, and a lot of them aren't shit jobs. It's insane. Like if you, if you like, say, for example, have a prison record and you're trying to get back into the labor force, becoming a union carpenter is you can get in with a record. You're, you get a good job. If you're a teamster, they're working their way up. They're, they're organizing. I'm very, very, I find that very promising. And I just think industrial manufacturing is also like, it's geography. Like you, you said, you know, tech can't organize their Slack chat. It's true. I mean, being in the same place, it's sharing a geography is actually true. This is why I argue that, uh, Nextdoor is the only truly social, social media, uh, because it actually is a community, whether you like it or not. You know, people are in spitting distance. I don't know how much this investment is going to be, but any foothold in, you know, onshoring, any investment in manufacturing, any investment in infrastructure, which is also fascinating. I just want that. I, I have said this before. It's like, you know how we were talking about you adjust your expectations when you move to New York and you slowly lower your standards <laughs> yeah, for yeah. livable conditions. We've done that. And I think historians will look back on that. We've done that with the entire infrastructure of the country where we just sort of, they'll say, yeah, they just sort of slowly accepted that sometimes bridges collapse. Sometimes there are huge, uh, you know, environmental disasters. Sometimes trains just fall off the tracks. We don't even think about it. It's just like A me lot going of trains like, recently. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We just got used to it. So obviously, like, I want us to invest in those things. I think public investment in jobs, in work, in projects that provide a geography for people that are already unionized workforces. Those to me, I believe are the way forward. Hey, I could be wrong, but I got to say they've had the advantage. They've always had the advantage. They have the advantage more than nurses and teachers. I love nurses and teachers, but the cool thing about being a truck driver or, you know, a union electrician or working on an assembly line is you aren't in a horrible amount of debt to a university. You have a position of, of comfort. If, if not comfort, uh, a kind of security that they don't have. They're not, you're not constantly worried about your credit being destroyed by fucking NYU or even, even the, uh, community colleges have like shot up. I would like to see also growth in trade schools you know i the whole like stop mm -hmm. going to college like it it sounds like no absolutely i believe in pursuing the the you know the liberal arts as well i believe in a, a broad-based um educational experience i think what you're doing here is is great and i like that people have a lot of access even though we both agree we want some curation to different podcasts about history and economics and etc but the promise we were made that going to college would get us a job is clearly a lie. But hey, you know, if Biden wants to throw, uh, you know, $50 million into building more bridges. That's more union jobs that we don't even have enough people for. That means we're going to see more people, especially kids, 
you know, getting like journeymans and like, you know, working their way into union work. I'm, I dare I say, excited about that. (laughs) I love it. I love it. No, that's great news. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, well, I'm glad to hear your enthusiasm because I've been like quietly thinking, man, this is like really good. <laughs> and I'm afraid to say it because I know people are going to yeah, just like yeah. jump on me. It's like, you're going to give Biden credit. Is that no, no, it's nothing to do with Biden as a as a unique individual. It's just yeah. like there's a there's a consensus among elites and that we're in a different period. These things are, you know, slow. It's going to take is, 40 years, but it's like, this is good news. This is good news. Yeah, this is good for the working class. This it doesn't matter who did it. I don't think Biden did it to be good for the working class. And no, I he don't doesn't care. He really doesn't. give a shit. Yeah. I, it I doesn't matter. Even, yeah. Yeah. They didn't, didn't even do it. So it's whatever Kambal of Skeksis did it. But like, <laughs> you know, I it's it's good. This is good for the working class. And whether he did it for popularity is completely irrelevant. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. I, and I have to plug again. I wrote something for Damage about the infrastructure bill, about how like, well, it should have been Bernie's, not just because he would have mm. he would have loved it and he would have invested way more. Way more. But because and it could be executive orders too. There's certain things he could do without without going to Congress. He like he also would have taken credit. And it's very important to mm. take credit for stuff oh, like yeah. that. I know there's Biden projects going on all around me, but if it, it should have been it, it, he should have been like singing it from the rooftops. Like this is what, just from a perspective. Hey, vote yeah. Democrats. This is what we. This is what we gave you. It's um, the FDR strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. it was absolutely. You know, he he doesn't again deserve credit, and it's completely cynical. And I I don't give a shit. But if they were smart, if they were smart bastards, they would do this. And Bernie would have been smart enough to be like, by the way, this is what social democracy gets you, instead of people believing like, oh, good Biden would do this. But like what do you what do you you're not even taking a victory lap you dumb fucking democrats like this is <laughs> you do one good thing you do one fucking good thing for the bad reasons who cares and you're not even like using it to your advantage do they they like losing they must fucking like losing yeah yeah I, there's some kind of uh yeah fetishistic weird thing going on that's yeah i mean i think I like that, being the underdog <laughs> they they do i think the uh that the last thing that i'll i'll say about this is that i'm involved with an artist run space here in new york called dun kunsthall which is a you know a kunsthall in an old abandoned dunkin donuts and we have a, <laughs> there's a show up right now from nancy holt who's a canonized artist from you know works from 69 to 78 spanning that period and uh, I was sitting there, uh, what was it, the last Saturday, and you know, there's a bunch of people coming in from that generation, and they tell me stories about that peer group of artists. You know, Nancy Holt, Robert mm-hmm. Smithson. This guy comes in. I won't mention his name, but he was telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, in the 1970s, I was a plumber. Me and Philip Glass, we were we were both plumbers in Soho, and that was just the normal yeah. job that they worked. And then they went on to have yeah. these incredible creative careers, and like. That was yeah. that was great. That's what like that that's what that period of political economy gave you. That's what sustained yeah, all of their work. That's what built the canon. You could work a straight job and still make stuff. And I I don't even think that has to apply to professional artists like whatever. If you want to spend fucking 10 hours a week quilting, you know, if if you yeah. want to, you know, whatever, paint your house a stupid color, anything you want to do involving aesthetics or the arts or whatever, you should have time to do that. And honestly, I don't see that as having a, a bunch of professional artists maybe isn't the way to go. Maybe 
I would be completely fine working a straight job 25 hours a week and then being left to my left to my own devices. I think everyone deserves that, whether even if you're a completely untalented artist. Yeah, no, you just have your own self-sustained scene of like your niche interest and it doesn't need to scale. And that's like, that's perfectly fine. That's whatever you want to do. Yeah, It doesn't need to scale. It doesn't need to scale. It can be, if it, if it has a popular following that can happen organically. Amber, thank you so much. This has been, I just, your, I should say your writing, your thinking on these topics over the last few years has been such an incredible influence has guided, you know, so much of my own thinking and my references, the readings, uh, you know, the, the syllabi that I give students and listeners of the podcast. So, uh, thank you for joining us today. Your book Dirtbag is out now from Macmillan Press. Where's the best place for people to purchase the book? So, you know, it's anywhere you get books. What would be cool is if you can stand to pay the extra $4 markup or whatever, is if you call your local bookstore and ask them to pre-order it for you. One, because if they get enough of those, they'll, you know, I'll, I'll get it in the window and it'll be more people will fucking read it. But two, I like bookstores. I like, you know, I like public spaces where you can peruse around and not even necessarily spend money. So if you could do that, take a little bit of the markup. It's great. If not, you know, every, there's, there's the non-evil Amazon option. Or let's be honest, ethical consumption doesn't work. I don't think you're a bad person if you order it from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I won't put judge out, you. Yeah, yeah. The podcast, uh, I don't think we'll get this out before the 5th, but I will promote to social media. I'll give people a pre-order link. Oh, thank you so um, much. Yeah. So uh, you, you can find this everywhere. Books are sold. Very excited for it. Oh, Amber, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, this thank has been so wonderful. Much. And I love, what you're, I love what you're doing here. This is awesome. I'm glad people can like have a, have a fucking education that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg and explore ideas, which is sorely needed. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks, Amber. More again soon. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Substack or Patreon find me on socials at joshua citarella this is a listener supported show i don't do any advertising so your support is really what keeps this project going thanks for listening see you again soon